0: Well, hello there. Welcome to the Doctor Joe Show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Mark, you know, you know what? I could see you thinking before the introduction today because it's now different each time. Mm. Totally love.
0: And I came to the conclusion seconds before I opened my mouth too.
1: Yeah. It's, How was it? Great. I think it was great. It's that that limbic spontaneity, coupled with a little bit of prefrontal cortical, you know, anticipation. It's great. Mm. It was great. Really, really nice. We had a good week.
0: Yes, great week. Love, love this holiday season. It's always so festive and magical.
1: Yeah, it really is. And not so cold, but it's starting yeah. a little colder. You know, not too bad. It's good. Doable. Perhaps you could introduce our guest, Tom McCoy.
0: Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we're honored to have T.C. Morrison. T.C. Morrison is an alumnus of Audubon University and New York University School of Law and served four years in the U.S. Air Force Judge Advocate General Corps before joining the New York law firm Rogers & Wells, becoming a partner in 1975. He later worked at Patterson-Belknap Webb & Tyler for 34 years, becoming a prominent figure in advertising and trademark litigation, and concluded his career at Manit, Phelps, and Phillips in New York. Morrison, reflecting on his legal career, authored satirical novels about class action lawyers. With his first book, Torts Are Us, and the highly acclaimed second book, Please Pass the Torts, featured in the New York Post. Welcome to the Dr.
1: Joe Show. Welcome, T.C. Morrison. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure having you here. So how how did you shift over from doing the litigation work, advertising, trademark,
2: into becoming an author? Uh, Actually, it was fairly easy. I I, I love novels, and I always wanted to write a novel. When I was uh, spent four years in the Air Force, the demands on my time weren't all that heavy, so I actually wrote what I called a spy novel. I sent it to several publishers. Luckily, none of them accepted it, and it's never seen the light of day. Isn't that quite appropriate for a spy
1: novel? Really? I mean, spies are never meant to be really seen, so I think that that it's quite well. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. USA. no,
2: no it's okay. So, in any event, uh, I put aside the idea of writing uh, any kind of fiction because uh, I was really engrossed in a very demanding practice for forty-five, forty-six years. As I was approaching retirement and began thinking about what I would do after I retired, my thoughts went back to my dream of writing a novel. This time, I had the the uh, common sense to write about something I knew about, which was modern American litigation. After all, I didn't know anything about spying except what I saw in movies or read in Ian Fleming novels. Uh, but having spent 45 years in state and federal courts throughout the country, I felt I knew quite a bit about the legal world. So that, that led to my decision uh, to write um, novels about the modern day practice of law.
1: Novels about the modern day practice of law. Tell me more about that.
2: More specifically, satirical novels. I didn't want to write a serious book about the law. I figured nobody would read it. I didn't want to write a legal thriller. There are too many of those out. But when I looked at my career, the cases I did, cases I read about, I realized there's a lot of humor in the law. And most lawyers take themselves way too seriously. And I thought, I'm gonna write a a book uh, about the humor in modern day litigation. And um, I I went at it by creating a pair of twin brothers, uh, Pap and Pup, who both are with big firms, have traditional practices, and decide to leave their law firms and set up a plaintiff's class action firm where they could both have more fun and make more money, and uh, off and running, uh, uh, doing a series of wacky class action cases for wacky clients in front of wacky judges and with wacky adversaries.
1: Mark, I saw you. I lean love it. In. I that's- can't wait to read it. I saw you lean
2: in right away and written. start giggling. Uh, I hope so. That's 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 um, that's my intent, and certainly a lot of readers have commented that that they just laugh out loud as they're reading the books. There's actually been three of them. Uh, The initial book was called Torts Are Us, and that introduced these two characters. And at that time, I thought maybe I would just write one book, but all of my friends and colleagues who read it uh, really loved it and said I should really do more. So that led me to write the second one, um, uh, Please Pass the Torts. And then most recently, uh, the people that contacted you were promoting the third book in the series, Send in the Tort Lawyers. That book just came out in October, and um, I kind of like it the best, and so do a lot of my readers.
0: So let me ask you, you were a tort attorney, I assume? No. No.
2: I was a litigator. Uh, I tried cases and argued appeals around the country, mainly for um uh, major pharmaceutical and consumer products clients. Um, many of the cases were in the false advertising and trademark field, but others were just everyday commercial litigation between uh, big clients. I, so
0: you were defending, defending the client? As no,
2: generally Okay, which is why I was so uh, enamored of my practice. Um, when I was at uh, Patterson Belknap, the firm I spent most of my time with, we we were the firm that first developed the concept of false advertising litigation, whereby companies would sue their competitors for false advertising. Up to that time, false advertising matters were handled at the FTC in uh, administrative proceedings that took years. And we came up with a provision in the Lanham Act uh, that, that we felt covered false advertising and under the Lanham Act, as in a trademark case, you can sue your competitor. And we uh, we really uh, pioneered a whole new field of law. Today, all the major firms have lawyers who do false advertising litigation, but we were really uh, uh, pioneering that whole field.
1: I have a a question: What is a tort? Because I, I know that I've been I've been taught things at school, but my guess is it's not. Even the same spelling.
2: Uh, no, a tort is just a um, a a, a non criminal wrong. Uh, a car ass car. Ass, somebody rams you, rear ends your car. That's a tort. You have a swimming pool. A kid falls in it and is injured. That's a tort. Any kind of a a, a, a wrong that doesn't rise to the level of a criminal uh, matter would be considered a tort.
0: Typically, it's a negligent act, so yeah. you would have to prove that yes. you were negligent in some way. Yeah. You weren't criminal, right? however, you were negligent.
2: Yeah, zillions of those cases are filed every year against doctors, against consumer product companies. Um, and uh, I, I never did that kind of litigation. I had no real desire to do it. Um, I got exposed to class action litigation in my final years when I was with Manette, Phelps, and Phillips. They did a lot of defense of uh, consumer class action litigation, and they would call on me for advice about the advertising issues in the case. I never really wanted to litigate those kinds of cases because they never go to trial. They always get settled. Um, uh, There's a huge, uh, a big complaint, press conference, and thousands of plaintiffs join in. But those cases almost always get settled because the corporations that are sued can't really afford to take them to trial. Um, the kind of litigation I did was very different. It was cases that really mattered to the clients. Uh, for example, advertising. Um, if your competitor was making a major claim about their product, they're not going to stop making it just because you told them you think it's false. Uh, you take them to court and you have a little trial. And uh, that's what I, that was a more than probably 50% of the cases I did were in that realm, so these case, those cases meant something to the clients, and the stakes were fairly fairly high, and the cases generally went to trial.
0: So let me ask you this: Did you feel guilt? Did you feel any any sense of guilt, uh, satirizing your 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 profession?
2: Actually, not at all. Um, and a lot of the readers of the book uh, are themselves lawyers or have some connection with the legal profession. All my lawyer friends love them. Uh, Even the tort lawyers, here's something interesting. The most famous tort lawyer in the U.S. is Ralph Nader. Uh, You probably remember him, Unsafe at Any Speed. Uh, He founded a, a museum in Winstead, Connecticut called the National Tort Museum. It's an homage to tort lawyers who bring tort cases. About a month ago, I did a book reading and signing at the tort museum. They loved my books. They bought 20 of them. And they're uh, they're on sale, so even tort lawyers have a sense of a uh, good sense of humor.
1: That's pretty impressive, though. Ralph Nader certainly was a well-known name in, in my right? Yeah, he
2: has a he has a great museum. The actual the original Corvair that was the subject of his book, Unsafe at Any Speed, is on display there. It's a fascinating museum.
1: Huh. So, TC, tell us tell us a bit about the latest book. Send in the tort lawyers. What's going on with that?
2: Well, it's 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 frankly, it's a continuation. It's the third book in the series, continuation of the lives and loves of the lawyers in this firm, Peters and Peters, Patrick Peters, uh, and his twin brother uh, Prescott Peters. Uh, as I said earlier, they left their respective firms to join start up this class action firm. Patrick is the street smart guy. He comes up with all the crazy ideas. Uh, His brother Prescott is more cerebral, intellectual, hesitant. He always has a reason why the cases aren't going to work and uh, they're going to be a waste of time. But yet, using his smarts, he's always able to figure out a legal angle that will help him. So, each book, I would say, except for the first one, which is a little different because I had to introduce the brothers and their prior life, but the second half of the first book and then the next two books. I would say, basically cover a year in the life of the firm of Peters and Peters. And in each of those uh, situations, they, they have a series of, of wacky clients who come to them uh, with wacky claims, uh, and they file these lawsuits. Just for example, a case that's in both the second book and the third book involves an attempt to free all the chimpanzees in the Bronx Zoo. Uh, because the chimpanzees uh, would really like to live free uh, on a, a um, you know an animal refuge rather than being locked up in cages. Now, I didn't just make up that case. Uh, in every case in all three books has a real life counterpart of an actual case that really happened and was brought in real life. What I did was take the cases and stretch them and uh, add onto them. But there was a, a lawsuit, there've been several lawsuits to free animals in zoos, including a lawsuit to free the, uh, anim- the uh, chimpanzees in the Bronx Zoo. What, what I added to the uh, situation, uh, which none of the real life uh, lawyers thought to do, uh, I had the Peters brothers come up with a, an animal communicator named Dr. Doolittle, who actually communicates with animals. And he went to the Bronx Zoo and he talked to the chimpanzees and was able to tell the court that these chimpanzees are very unhappy and they they really would like to live free. So that was a wrinkle that uh, was not in the real life cases.
1: It's certainly a very lofting experience. Uh, that was a Hugh Lofting reference to Dr. Doolittle, um, for those who know the author. So let me ask you, how, how do you get the ideas? You, how, what's your writing process? We've had several authors on. I'm fascinated. What is your writing process?
2: Uh, for me, the key is to, in, in each book, to identify the cases I want to zero in on. Uh, each, the second and the third book are similar in that they both have about four or five major cases uh, that occur in the course of a year in the life of this law firm. So the first key for me is identifying. Something that I've read about that I think would be a good subject. The best example is the the current book, Send in the Tort Lawyers. The most interesting case in that book is a takeoff on uh, FTX, the Sam Bankman-Fried cryptocurrency case. I was starting to um, uh, research and pull together ideas um, about a year ago Thanksgiving uh, for the third book just as that story was hitting the papers and every day the wall street journal and the new york post two papers i read every day had a, a new story every day and i thought this this story is too good to be true and and it lends itself easily to uh, to satire in fact i actually wrote uh, an article uh, for a publication called stranger than fiction This story truly is stranger than fiction. You have this, this, he was then about 24 years old, this kid who dressed every day in sandals, a t-shirt, shorts, and a baseball cap. Even if he was meeting with clients and investment bankers, he was always playing on his cell phone, even during meetings. Uh, He was was said to be worth more than $30 million dollars. He was living with a bunch of kids in this uh, 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 condo complex in the Bahamas uh, that they they paid millions of dollars for. Uh, they were all having sexual relationships with each other. It was just a totally bizarre story. And this kid became became the sort of the hero of the crypto craze and and uh, uh, investors and. Financiers were pouring huge amounts of money into this firm, and then they decided to promote the crypto to everyday consumers. And that's where my book picks up because they used several uh, celebrities uh, to promote the uh, FTX's crypto. Uh, You may have seen the commercials. Tom Brady and his then wife, Giselle Bunchkin, uh, were in several commercials. Uh, Harry David, was in a commercial that was aired at the Super Bowl on on the big screen during during halftime at the Super Bowl. Um, uh, it, it was just incredible, and that led to everyday investors investing in this crypto. They had no idea what they were doing. Uh, the the financial types love crypto because they can trade on it, and hopefully its value goes up. But everyday people were investing in it, and I think I think over the number is over a million investors invested in FTX crypto uh they took in uh 16 million of customer money and 10 million of that was turned over by bankman Freed to a sister company it was really a uh, a hedge fund uh, making investments and all that money was lost the investors were left uh with no recovery so that all happened as i was uh, planning out this third book. And I thought this is too good to be true. So I didn't really have to change much. That's the odd thing uh, other than changing the names of the celebrities um, uh, and the names of the principals and the name of the company instead of FTX, it's F-U-X in the book. And their crypto instead of F-T-T is just F-U crypto. Um, but I didn't really have to change the underlying facts. Uh, so that, that that's a perfect example of how something in the news uh, became the subject um, uh, of, of one of the cases in the books. The, uh, the other cases in that book are merely based on my uh, ongoing reading of um, uh, legal developments. The New York Post is a wonderful source for me because they have a knack of covering uh, zany stories that happened around the country. Uh, so I, I identified other other cases to write about. One was the Belgian chocolates case. There was a big lawsuit by people uh, who had bought Godiva Belgian chocolates, discovered the chocolates had been made not in Belgium, but in Reading, Pennsylvania, and they concluded huh. that they had been defrauded and they filed a lawsuit. So that That case is uh, is in the book. Another case that was uh, in the news at about that time, uh, Madison Square Garden, the owner of Madison Square Garden, James Dolan, one of the most hated entrepreneurs in New York City, (laughs) he had a blacklist and any lawyer or member of a law firm that was involved in a lawsuit against Madison Square Garden would not be admitted to the garden or to Radio City, which he also owned. So that became uh, uh an interesting topic for a case uh in the book. So I I put together about four or five cases like that and then develop them as the brothers take on the cases, develop them, and then uh, obviously all they always almost always result in a win with a nice fee to the uh, Peters and Peters firm. The only case they lost was the Chimps case, the uh the New York courts in real life and in my book decided that chimps did not have a right to file lawsuits uh, to demand their freedom. So you can't win them all.
1: You can't win them all, but they're certainly monkeying around with that one. Commentaries really on, on things that are happening uh, in the world today. And then you're, you're taking them and you're, you're finding the the
2: humor in them, the the satirical component to it. Uh, Yeah. There's, there's actually a, a hidden serious message in the three books, and that and that has to do with the abuse of the class action system. Uh, class action uh, class actions play a real valid role in the legal world. And uh, ironically, the one case in all three books that I think was truly a legitimate use of class actions was the FTX Bankman Fried case. That really uh, real people were injured and they deserve to be represented. The other cases though, the Belgian chocolates case, there's no real victim to to whether the chocolates are made in Reading, Pennsylvania or Belgium. Uh, and yet in real life, there was a, a real life class action case. There was a real life settlement. The, um, the, the uh, Godiva ended up paying $15 million to get rid of the case. And guess what? The members of the class each member of the class got $15, unless they had a proof of purchase, a proof of purchase of your Belgian chocolate, then you got $25. The lawyers walked away with $5 million. So that, that's where the money goes, and, and uh, I have a lot of fun with that in the book, and the brothers have a lot of fun litigating the case, but it's, it's in my judgment, a good example of how the class action system is being abused. For cases that have no real, real uh, business being litigated in in modern day courts.
1: Off air, we were also talking a little bit about about your feeling about the class action suit and system in general. Tell us a bit about your thoughts on that.
2: Well, as I said earlier, I think class actions play a really legitimate role in the American judicial system. Uh, take the Bernie Madoff scandal, take the uh, Sam Bankman-Fried crypto, or take a, uh, an airline uh, plane crash, or the 9-11 uh, buildings collapsing. Uh, all of those cases, there's no way they could be handled by an individual plaintiff uh, because there are so many of them. Those lend themselves to class action treatment. You have real people who suffered real injuries. The The cases I'm concerned about uh, are, are the type that are in my book they're heavy on on food advertising because that's where the biggest part of the fraud occurs um, uh, a lot of them are uh, have to do with food ingredients uh, for example uh, a box of cereal with a picture of fruit on it but there's no actual fruit in the box just maybe fruit flavoring uh, there was a case involving Fruit Loops Uh, And there was a case involving a cereal, which made it into my second book. Uh, I called it the Corny Flakes case. Uh, Corny Flakes was reformulated uh, and called Berry Good, B-E-R-R-Y, Good Corny Flakes, with a picture of blueberries on a very beautiful bowl of Corny Flakes. Uh, And um, the, um, the plaintiff who bought them, When she took them home, expected to find blueberries in her corny flakes, and there were none. It was just blueberry flavoring. She emptied the whole box. Uh, I think she used 20 separate bowls and emptied the whole box into 20 separate bowls, but was unable to find uh, a single berry. So she filed a lawsuit, became a class action, uh, and guess what? The the makers of corny flakes uh, uh, made a nice settlement and um, our plaintiff uh, got a few thousand dollars and uh, the Peters Law Firm got a few million dollars as legal fees. That's the issue in all of these cases. Does does a picture of berries sitting on a bowl of corny flakes, does that imply, send the message to the consumer that there are actual corny flakes uh, in the bowl? And so number one, a company needs to be careful about showing something on its package that may not be really true. Or if it wants to do that, better put a disclaimer about, you know, no actual blueberries in, in this (laughs) merely blueberry flavoring. Uh, but that's a very fertile source of litigation. There were, there are lots of cases involving food products like that. I chose corny flakes to focus on, uh, in, uh, uh, in in my uh, my second book, but there are a lot there are a lot of cases out there like that. The problem with these cases, though, is that there is generally enough in the complaint that will get the plaintiff by a motion to dismiss. And once it gets by a motion to dismiss, you have two years of discovery um, followed by a trial. And a corporation just wants to get on with its business. It doesn't want to spend two years litigating something like this. So they enter into These settlements and the plaintiffs' lawyers know that that's their objective. They're not bringing these cases to take them to trial. They're bringing these cases to get settlements. There is a lawyer in New York uh, who, in in uh, the year I think was 2020, there were a total of 160 consumer class action cases filed in New York State. This one lawyer filed 120 of them. He was known as the King, the King of Torts. And they were all, all food-related cases. So, um, so I, I think I heard sort of a legal a motion to dismiss. For our audience, what, what is a motion to dismiss? It's, an, it's a legal argument that tells, you say to the judge, even if everything in the complaint is proven true, uh, it doesn't rise to a legally valid claim and therefore it must be dismissed. But that means you have to assume the truth of all the allegations in the complaint, which is why it's hard to win a motion to dismiss because you can't can't say the case should be thrown out because fact A isn't true. Uh, You have to say, assuming all the facts in the complaint are true, the case still doesn't have any legal merit. And that's a really tough standard, and that's why these cases are hard to get rid of uh, early on.
1: And so is is that is that sort of the the chess move, if you will, to begin a
2: settlement proceeding? Yeah. In in almost all of these cases, the defendant will will want to file a motion to dismiss, to dismiss the case, and the plaintiff will file a motion to have it certified as a class action. Assuming the defendant loses the motion to dismiss and the plaint the judge grants the class action status. At that point, it's on a track to be settled, because once the class action determination is made, uh, almost no company is going to want to take that case to trial. So, so absent a really a judge really willing to take the bull by the horns, uh, one of the cases in um, in the current book is about Happy Cows, uh, Ben and Jerry's the ice cream uh, maker uh, ran a campaign a couple years ago saying that its ice cream came from the milk and cream of happy cows there was an actual lawsuit uh, brought claiming that claim was not true those cows so were that claim was bull <laughs> it was bull that and actually the judge uh, the judge uh, took the bull by the horn, so to speak, and dismissed the case. <laughs>
1: so I in heard. My
2: book, in my book, however, uh, uh, my lawyers, Pap and Pup, are much more resourceful. They, um, they brought in their animal communicator, Dr. Doolittle, who went up to Vermont and went to all the farms that, that supply milk and cream to Ben and Jerry's, and uh, were able to report to the judge that these cows are not happy. It's too cold in the winter, and also it's Vermont, and if they flatulate too much, they're going to be sent to the rendering plant, Um, and so the judge allowed the case to proceed to trial, and uh, the the Peters brothers won a nice jury verdict, and everybody lived happily ever after.
0: Hmm. I've always been interested about uh, class action lawsuits how what percentage and and you can share with what your experience and what your thought is versus what are in your books what percentage are theorized and concocted by the attorney and then seek out the plaintiff
2: oh that's that's a common situation and my books explore that in in most of the cases in the book it starts with the lawyers having an idea for a lawsuit and then they go out and look for someone to be the plaintiff now that doesn't happen in every real life class action case but it does happen in many cases um I, i'm I, this is too far in the past for me to remember accurately but there was a well known class action lawyer in new york who was actually disbarred because he was soliciting plaintiffs to be plaintiffs in his uh, big big time class action lawsuits so I, I can't tell you what percentage of it that happens. Certainly in my book, in 80% of the cases, the lawyers come up with the case and then find uh, find the plaintiff.
1: Well, I, I certainly personally have, have received at least half a dozen letters asking if I'd bought a particular product that, I mean, from a com- complete stranger, I don't know how they get my e how they get my address. And I get this letter saying, "If you've bought such and such, let us know." Yep. I mean, that's that's. You can't, what you the can't class
2: turn on your television is. without seeing ads by lawyers uh, to just that effect. If you have this medical condition, uh, you know, call call us at this number. You may you may be part of a class. Uh, this is this is ubiquitous, and I think I think there's way too much of it.
1: And so your books are really bringing attention to this, to the average reader. You know, if you get a letter like this and you respond, you know, I hope you enjoy the $15 that you're going to get.
2: Yeah. Yeah. that, that That's right. The, the, the average plaintiff in those cases walks away with almost nothing. Now it's different in the class, the real class actions, the airline crashes, the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, uh, People are going to get, members of the class are going to get real compensation there.
1: But, but the, the Bernie Madoff one, you know, was famous. Did people actually get any compensation? Where did the, the money come from to, to compensate them?
2: Yes, they, the, um, they were able to recoup a lot of money. I think a lot of the money was money that Madoff had paid out because it was a Ponzi scheme. So as money came in from one investor. He paid it out to another and the uh, the people the lawyers who administered the uh, class action were able to to pull back a lot of the money he had paid out uh, before the scheme was uncovered and there I can't tell you the number, but I think people got more than fifty cents on the dollar of what they had had lost uh, in the of the
0: uh, of the actual money, not of the fictitious right. Uh, right. appreciation yeah. of the yes. money.
2: Yes, that yeah. that was the big issue: were they entitled? Were they entitled to a share of the fictitious value, or merely what they what they had paid in? And yeah. luckily, it was it was ruled that it's what you paid in, not not what the stock may have theoretically been worth. The inter- there's an interesting kicker on this in the real life uh, FTX case that is now going through bankruptcy. There was just an article this week. That they are, they do have some money they've located uh, that they're going to be able to pay out to some of the investors. And believe it or not, a lot of the investors don't want their money back. They want to get crypto. Huh. They want crypto and not money. It, it blows my mind. So, Mark, let me just ask you real quick: you,
1: you're a, a lawyer. How how did this resonate a with liar. you?
0: Lawyer yeah attorney you're an attorney
1: sorry Is there i love
0: it i um no okay i uh i just like to uh you're an att- to correct you
1: okay so mark you're an attorney how does this resonate with you
0: i'm a lawyer <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> um i i think it's great i think um you know torts are necessary tort attorneys are necessary right because it it helps with um product defects and false advertising on food and it it keeps people in line and and doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's a check and a balance, right? Um, with everything it's slippery slope. I'm not a huge fan of the class action lawsuits as they are right now in our American jurisprudence. I do love satire. I do love humor. I do love laughing out loud. I do love laughing at uncomfortable, uh, things as well, which I'm sure makes this book, um, even that much more appealing, which I can't wait to listen to. However, while in law school, we were we did have a discussion with one of our professors about the jokes, the lawyer jokes, and this was a criminal procedure uh, professor, and he said to us, "Listen, anyone tells a lawyer joke, look them dead in the eye and say, you know, it's all funny until you actually need your lawyer."
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: And you know what? It's it's we've had we've had conversations about the police departments, we've had conversations about doctors and, you know, a few rotten apples does not rot the whole lot. And, um, and it's, you know, it's human nature for folks to be doing nasty things. It doesn't matter what profession they're in and they need to be called out and, uh, satirized. Yes,
1: that's true. Right. And let's do it. And the vast majority I think of rotten fruit falls to the ground. Really? it falls off the tree. So, right. So, so to right. speak, um, first of all, great discussion. So appreciated. You do wanted to respond to Mark?
2: Well, I'm just going to say, I certainly agree with what he said. After all, I spent 50 years as a practicing lawyer, uh, four years of that time in the Air Force JAG Corps, and 45 years in New York uh, representing uh, corporations and major litigations. So I don't, at all mean to belittle the legal profession as a whole. Lawyers certainly play a, uh, an important role in our society, but there's an extent to which uh, some lawsuits and some lawyers go too far. And that's kind of what I'm trying to expose in my books.
1: Yeah. How do people find your books?
2: Other than my wife, who thought the first book had too many dirty words in it, uh, <laughs> she said people will think you talk like that. I said, oh, it's fiction. In any event, I would say uh, all the people that I've heard from and who post reviews on Amazon have all said uh, uh, good things uh, about the books. Uh, one of my favorites was um, a friend of mine from law school who, who read the first book as his wife, his wife was in the hospital for a, a, a really critical cancer surgery. And he was in the waiting room and he needed to pass the time. So he started reading my book and huh. he's laughing out loud every page. And these nurses are looking at him. Why are you laughing your wife? <laughs> oh, my eyes. gosh.
1: That's a great story. It reminds that me is of, great. Of, of my wife when when email first started, she thought that LOL meant lots of love. And not laugh out loud so she was writing to people mm-hmm. so sorry to hear about your divorce lol you know and uh so sorry to hear <laughs> about your oh my pictures, goodness lol
2: <laughs> you know, <it> like,
1: <laughs> but honest everything that is so I mean, how awesome. do people get your books tc
2: basically they need to go to amazon it's uh the, all three books are available on amazon the way to get to amazon is through my website which is torts, the word torts, the letter R, tortsrusbook.com, tortsrusbook.com. If you go to the website, you'll see all kinds of interesting uh, podcasts, interviews, uh, and then you'll see a link to Amazon where you can easily get any of the three books uh, in the series. Or you can go to the Tort Museum in Winstead uh, and pick up your own uh, personal copy from the Tort Museum.
1: That's right. And that's tort, T-O-R-T, not T-O-R-T-E, like the French pastry.
2: Well, yeah, that's correct. In book two, uh, Please Pass the Torts, there's a dinner party episode where uh, the guests are talking about legal tort the difference between legal torts and the torts that are being passed around uh, for people to eat for dessert. And that's there's great. an amusing discussion about the difference between the two kinds of torts.
1: Great. It's definitely something to chew on. Uh, So I'm curious. So what what are you working on now?
2: Um, I'm at this point, I'm probably a one trick pony. I don't think I'm going to write the great American novel, uh, but I am working on the next book in the series. And the idea for this book came from uh, my computer expert. I'm not very I.T. literate. And uh, so I have a, a computer guy who comes and helps me with computer issues. And he said, you know, gee, you ought to do something with AI in your next book. And so I am doing just that. I, am, uh, I already have in mind a couple of uh, legal cases that will involve uh, AI, and that will probably be the centerpiece of the, uh, of the next book.
1: That's gonna be great. I cannot wait to read that. That's going to be so much fun. So, you know, the Dr. Joe show is based on the the I am approach, Uh, our current maximum potential. This is who I am. The idea that we're all doing the best we can, but influenced by and responding to four domains our home domain, no one's going to argue your home has had an influence on who you are, the social domain, which is the rest of the world, the biological domain of your brain and body, and what I call the I see domain how do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? Because the four domains interconnect, a small change in any of the domains can have a big effect. So the first truth of the I am, small changes can have big effects. TC, what small change can you recommend to our listeners based on our topic for tonight?
2: I think the change I would most recommend is that we all step back and not only enjoy a good laugh, but we step back from this constant uh, uh, need to be in each other's face uh, to sue for any imagined wrong that happens. Uh, you know, life life happens. A lot of things happen in life. They're not all pleasant, but my gosh, uh, to run the court every time something happens that you don't like, uh, uh, I think is, is a real excess. And I think people would benefit from stepping back for a minute and just thinking through uh, where all of this uh, is going. The, my first book in the series introduces a neighbor named Mona Lott. And she is in a, um, a constant battle with a neighbor who hates her. And the neighbor reports her to the police for shooing geese off her property. And the whole thing ends up in, in an arrest and a, a lawsuit. And if you, if you think about it, uh, neighbors shouldn't be calling the police on their neighbor. Uh, these, these things can be resolved in a more uh, uh, amicable uh, method. So I, I think there's a tendency in the country, you see it in the political realm, you see it in the legal realm, uh, whenever we don't like something, we raise we raise the decibel level uh, and yell and shout at each other. And I think that's, that's, that's a big mistake. Yeah. So,
1: in other words, talk with someone. Talk with the person, perhaps, or don't just take it to. I I love. I I love the names that you create. Mona Lott is great. So, I think that's really important. Um, I think we can all benefit from that small change. I'm sure everybody has some moment in their life where they thought, "Oh, I should sue this person," but step back. It's It's a. really important insight. The The second truth of the I am, everyone's got one. Everyone has an IC domain. They're interested in what you think or feel about them. And you know that that has an effect on their biological domain, because it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. And you are part of someone's home or social domain. So this means You control no one, but you influence everyone. And you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. T.C. Morrison, author, satirist, litigator, person with lived experience, 50 years in the legal system. What kind of influence do you want to be?
2: I think I would like to be an influence for reasoned discussion and debate. I'll give you two quick examples. Um, I took over uh, about four years ago as chair of our Republican town committee in our little town, Salisbury. The prior committee uh, was an in your face committee that alienated everybody in town, including most of the Republicans. And um, uh, I agreed to take on the project of resurrecting the, uh, the committee. And I told everyone, look, We're a big tent committee. We're going to, we want to, we want to make people take us seriously. We're not going to go after people. We're, we're going to uh, want people to see us as just a respected voice in the community that cares about local issues, uh, turning down the decimal level. A more recent example, um, along with, uh, four of my Jewish friends, I helped put together a vigil for Israel uh, uh, just about a month ago in our local church. And um, we didn't publicize the event because we were afraid of uh, potential demonstrations, Uh, but the event was a huge success. 80 people attended. Uh, We had over 90 people who signed on, allowed us to use their name as supporters. Um, And a week after the event occurred, And we were all very pleased with the event. It went off really nicely with a lot of nice speakers. About a week later, a really nasty article appeared in the local paper saying that this was a disgrace, that this vigil doesn't respect, doesn't reflect the feelings of the residents of Salisbury. Uh, the residents of Salisbury are furious with Israel, uh, and their treatment of Hamas and Palestinians. It was really a nasty, vile letter. My first instinct was to write a letter back in kind to the paper, uh saying how you know how wrong this guy was. Then I thought about it and I thought that's not going to, that's just going to inflame things. So I stepped back and wrote a um uh, a very different kind of letter saying simply that this may or may not have represented how a majority of people in our town feel, but it certainly reflected the best of our town, people turning out to show their support for Israel and the Jewish community. And um, once I thought about it, that was clearly the right way to go. So that, that's the kind of influence I try to have in my, in my private and public life.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that resonates completely with the I am approach. We're all doing the best we can. We don't have to like it, but we have to respect what other people think or feel based on the influence of their domains. And what you demonstrated is one of my phrases, keep it frontal, don't go limbic. That limbic, emotional, irrational, impulsive response will happen, you tempered it, and then you thought it through, and you were reflective instead of reflexive. And that is that's a wonderful influence to be. If we could all be like that, help each other be reflective and just appreciate each other for their value, no matter what their position. So, T.C. Morrison, I want to thank you so much. Folks, please go out and, and get the book. Send in the Tort Lawyers a novel by T.C. Morrison and all of his other books. They are a great read. You will be laughing out loud. All right.
2: Thank you, Dr. Joe. Thank you, Mark. I'm very enjoyable.
1: It has been a pleasure. We'll see you all soon. Bye, folks. See you next week on The Dr. Joe Show.